Hello, food world. It's Robert Crutchfield, your favorite foodie friend, here from Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast. Today, we have an episode that you've been looking forward to and you don't even know it. We have with us somebody who not only authored five cookbooks coming this summer, but was a keynote speaker to the American Culinary Federation Convention. So we're going to find out what's up with Keith Saracen. Here's Keith. Well, people are good. Okay, everybody. I'm kind of excited about this ex- about this particular episode because here we're with a friend of mine, not only a friend in the industry, but I like to think of him as a friend, period, Chef Keith Saracen. Of course, Keith, I could, I could spit your bio out. But I'm sure you know it better than I do. So why don't you give people the, as I call it, the Reader's Digest version of who Keith Saracen is, and then we'll get into some more of the details of of what you got going on. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Huge fan myself. I think your story is incredible, too. I, I started cooking at the age of 14. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. And never met my dad, so it was just my mom and I, and, you know, we were kind of poor. And so one day I, I approached her, and I was like, I really want a mountain bike. And she's like, yeah, well, you got to work for it. <laughs> and so I applied at a local sub shop, started washing dishes, and hated it, and never wanted to get into the culinary industry. I, I had a good friend who was like my brother, his name was Steve, and he would, he loved, loved, loved cooking. So he would take another job and say, why don't you come in and work here? And so I'd follow him and... It wasn't until much later in my life when, when I got my degree in psychology, I was, you know, working part-time still in the industry and and Steve had that deep passion for it. So Steve was like, you know, moving on in his life and he, he approached me and he's like, you know, I'm having some health issues and he ended up getting diagnosed with stage four cancer. And when I was going down there for treatments with him and, you know, talking he would always say, hey, remember that chicken dish we used to do? You want to make that? He'd be like, oh, remember this dish? You know, would you make that for me? And it was in those moments where I realized that cooking was so much more than just feeding people. It was nourishing people's souls. And that really changed the trajectory of my life. And I'm sure we'll get into a lot of it, but, you know, kind of upper end picture. I started a couple of restaurants. I've written six books. And I have this deep passion and respect for food from the Indian subcontinent, which I've studied for over 16 years now. So that's the quick version. I'm sure we'll get into much more. Sure, sure. So it is six books. I was trying to remember. Yeah. It, does that count the one coming out in August? That does count that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, in fact, you and I were talking about how I was in the hospital last fall for three and a half weeks, almost almost all of it, the cardiac ICU, Mm. that actually spanned my birthday. Mm. And I came home after I got out of the hospital to the, uh, the birthday present my wife had gotten for me. And it was your, your book meat. I've been working at it since November. I still hadn't read that whole book. (laughs) I said, the audience doesn't know what we're talking about. They haven't seen this thing. Mm. So some of the people listening to this have had houses smaller than this book. But uh, that's probably a good place to start as any. Trust me, people out there, all four, five, eight of you, however many, if you're looking to know everything you wanted to know about meat and were afraid to ask, you you want the book Meat by Keith Saracen. Because this thing 
exhaustive does not cover what this book has to say about me. Mm, thank you. It was. Yeah, I, uh, sorry, oh, I, I've I've been referring to it regularly for months, and that's that's no lie. But well, I'm trying to think. Let's let's start out with some of the more operational things, like you do. You have what Atma Restaurant mm-hmm. now. For those that don't know, where is that from in New Hampshire? And can you get in a little bit into uh, Atma and how it does farm to table and all that kind of stuff? Sure. So Atma is the Hindi word for soul. It means kind of the maximum expression of oneself. And it's a pop-up series that I started coming up to two years ago. I wanted to, when I, I sold my my businesses and my restaurant in 2020 to my business partner, and I started to move on and figure, you know, like what, where, where am I now as a chef? I think it's something that we can relate to a lot, right? We go through iterations of our career. Where's my cuisine? And I, you know, I studied food from the subcontinent for, like I said, a better part of 16 years. And I never got to showcase that with the world. So Atma was the birth of that. It was kind of the rebirth of something that I cared so much about. And I, I was tired of the misconceptions that a lot of us made, and myself included, about Indian food, right? People listening to this might say, oh, it's spicy. It's all curry. It's, you know, the, all these misconceptions I thought were really frustrating. So I wanted to start a pop-up series that really kind of showcased different regional food from across the subcontinent. And since I work with over 31 different farms, you know, as chefs, we always really want to get the highest quality beautiful ingredient from a farm. And I started trying to figure out, well, what does it mean to cook Indian food in a place like New England, right? Mm -hmm. It makes sense in a place like India, where if you're on the beach of Mumbai and you go down, there's like stalls where you can have something called belpuri. And it's this crunchy, beautiful snack with all these gorgeous chutneys on it. And that's what they associate at the beach. Well, in New England, what do you think? It's lobster rolls, right? Right, right. So I wanted to think about what it looked like in the context of me not being Indian, clearly, and also how I could marry these two things without disrespecting and pushing too many boundaries there. And Atma's done that for the last two years, and we're hoping to open a brick and mortar restaurant right in the New England area next year. Oh, cool. If I, in fact, I have a brother and a sister-in-law and their family in the Boston area, and they find themselves in New Hampshire quite often, so... Oh, awesome. I or some part of my family may be there when you get the brick and mortar open. I would love uh, that. They probably would too. You were talking <laughs> about the, the cuisines and whatnot. I remember the last time I was in New England, which was too many years ago, my brother and my sister-in-law took me to a restaurant. I can't remember up there, but which is unfortunate because it's a big famous restaurant. And I, I was like, darn it, I'm not leaving Boston without a bowl of clam chowder. <laughs> yeah. Problem was, and, and and granted, I'm a big eater. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I I'm not even going to pretend, but I didn't realize how big the seafood platter was that I ordered to go with my bowl of clam chowder. <laughs> oh, I was so stuffed. <laughs> we don't mess. I around. was happy. Don't get me yeah. wrong. I was very very happy. But I was oh 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 I big eater or not, I I, I was stuffed. You talked about a little bit about the, the, the studying the Indian food for 16 years. And, and that's, didn't you actually study in India for what, about a month? Yeah. So originally my plan last year was to be in India 
for about a month. I have a, a wonderful teacher out there named Dr. Kurush Dalal, and he is an archaeologist, but he's also a food historian, which is really beautiful. He's, he's one of really like a four or five people who really have dedicated their life to uncovering, you know, the history, the lost recipes of India. And the man has probably forgotten more than I'll ever know in my entire life. And so my plan was to be with him for a while, but due to some unforeseen circumstances, I had to cancel the trip, which was kind of devastating because, you know, I was really looking forward to spending that time. So, you know, Lord willing, I'll be out there eventually and we'll be, we'll be moving forward with that. But with Kurush, I spend a lot of time talking to him every week. And so he'll, he'll kind of put me down these rabbit holes where he'll be like, I want you to start studying, you know, food and politics was a class that he offered that I was able to, to fortunately take on two different occasions. He'll look, he'll be like, Hey, I want you to think about this. I'll send him menus that I'm writing for different pop-ups for Atma. And he'll give me some wonderful feedback on it. So I'm very in touch with some wonderful people. And I'm really lucky that I get to, to have that opportunity. Yeah. And when we talk about some of these pop-ups and things, I know here fairly recently, haven't you been traveling more far afield around the country as far as doing some kind of demonstration or, or, or presentations on Indian food? Yeah, I, I was fortunate to be a keynote speaker at the American Culinary Federation last year in Las Vegas, taking the main stage, talking about the similarities between Mexican and an Indian cuisine and how they're kind of like cousins in so many different ways. For instance, you know, the chili wouldn't exist if it wasn't for South America. And so like in, there's a, there's a part of the Northeast of India where a very hot chili called the Bahata Jolakaya or ghost pepper exists. And that's originally, originally from there, but the modern chili, you know, never would have existed if it wasn't for the Portuguese bringing it over from, from South America. So. I talk a lot about history because I feel like if we study history, we can gain a deeper appreciation for our, our diversity in this world. And we can also get a deeper appreciation for how food travels. We learn very quickly as historians and chefs that food doesn't belong to anyone, but it's something that we do need to study and revere. Well, yeah, food doesn't belong to anyone, but at the same time, it belongs to everyone. Exactly. I find yep. it interesting that you, you talk about the history aspect of it. Not only does that tell us about the diversity and whatnot of it, but one of the things that, that I got reminded, I don't know, a year-ish ago is from the nutrition aspect of it, the whole issue of processed foods, mm. which, of course, the pendulum swung back to the whole farm-to-table movement. And... People in today's world fall into traps a lot of times for things like convenience sake. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it at the same time is ignorance of the history. And they don't know or understand that processed food was an answer to an era in food history where we didn't have refrigeration. Mm -hmm. We didn't have the, the trucks and the trains that we do now to transport things from one place to another. So to a large extent, if you know the history, you understand that the place processed food has in our lives in today's world is a, a bit of a historical anachronism. Mm. Processed food was invented to answer needs that we no longer have. Mm. 
Absolutely. And, you know, to that point, I feel like one of the things that, that that's, you know, to talk about our industry for a minute, right? To put on our little chef hats and, and our aprons, you know, what we do inherently is incredibly taxing work, right? We're, mm -hmm. we're asked to, to not only, you know, bring in and, and serve a tremendous amount of people, but if we take on the hat of servitude, one of the things that we find on the line is we're always serving others, but we fail to serve ourselves. For instance, staff meal is one of those things that you either have in the beginning of the night or the end, depending on, on you know, how your house sets it up. But right. staff meal tends to be whatever is left over in the kitchen before it goes bad. Let's make something from it. <laughs> and, and I think inherently what that's saying to our people and to us is that we will eat last. We will eat the worst of the worst. And our job is to make everyone else happy, but fail to notice that at the end of the night, when we're starving, what does the average chef do? Well, either they'll, they'll go to McDonald's, they'll crack open a can yeah. of, of, you know, processed food. We, we constantly neglect ourselves physically and mentally for the benefit of the consumer who walks in. And I think that that ideology is fundamentally to its core broken. And it echoes exactly what you said about convenience. You know, the average person looks at cooking as an inconvenience. And if the West fears one thing more than anything else, it's inconvenience. Exactly. But the thing of it is, what people don't understand is once you acquire a few basic skills, you can actually make, you can actually make better food faster working from scratch than you can cooking the processed food. Mm-hmm. For sure. I mean, yeah, you have to do some meal planning. A little mise en place is not a not a bad thing. People laugh at me when I'm in the kitchen at home because I I, I go to cook something and I'm 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 like prearranging everything. But <laughs> you know that that that's what we do. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've seen I've literally seen commercial kitchens where not only do they have all their ingredients out and available, but it's really a, a thing of beauty, Keith, really, because not only are these things out and available and, and pre-cut and, and all that kind of thing, the, the obvious things that, that people might think of, but what struck me was the first time I walked into a kitchen and the ingredients were arranged in order of how they go on the dishes. Mm, mm -hmm. And even with, even, with, even, with, even with different dishes and things. They had mm -hmm. their, uh, their, their, their mise en place was all integrated with their recipes and things where the majority of the time, it didn't matter what dish they were preparing, all the ingredients were lined up according to how they went on the dish. Mm -hmm. It was like, brother, it was a thing of beauty. Yeah. And it, for, I think our industry takes a lot of flack and rightfully mm -hmm. so nowadays. I really want to say rightfully so, right? There's a lot of mental health issues that are happening in this industry. There's a yep. lot of, of abuse that needs to be shown the light so that, you know, it can, it can die and it can disappear. Sure. However. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I, th I think that what you just said was so eloquently put because the industry also teaches us how we can organize our life. It teaches us structure and responsibility. It teaches us chain of command and respect. It teaches us to humble ourselves because at the end of the day, we're only as good as the last dish that we put out. And I don't know about you, but I've put out a lot of dishes that I hang my head and go, man, 
I wish I knew better during those moments, you know? So I think that's the thing, you know, for an industry that is getting a lot of flack, I also think there's beautiful lessons that I hope that we can expound upon as the next generation takes over. Absolutely. And you were talking about some of the struggles in the industry. Actually, a couple of episodes back, I talked to a chef by the name of Julio Rubio. He's not here with me locally, but he is here in Texas. He, he actually wrote a book called Cooking with His Love. Mm. And it's all about his journey. This man was cooking in five-star hotels at 21 years old. Mm. Ended up succumbing to the kind of substance abuse things that can go on in kitchens in our industry uh, to the point he was sleeping under bushes in the park. And for him, his faith was his way back. Mm. And I mean, I'm a man of faith myself, but I'm willing to admit that it doesn't work for everybody. Mm -hmm. At least not. Not maybe it would work for everybody, but not everybody is in the right place at this moment. Mm. And one of the things people have to understand about faith, no matter what faith you're talking about, is faith has to meet you at the at the at the proper place in your life and in your mindset. But Chef Rubio wrote an entire book about his journey from cooking in five-star hotels when he was still a kid and succumbing to all the temptations and whatnot that people in our industry sometimes fall victim to and how he used his faith as a vehicle to bring himself back to being a a fully productive member of society, as they say. Mm, That's beautiful. And those stories are so heartwarming. I I think as, you know, as chefs and, and people in this industry, I think one of the first things that's so important that we can do is talk about how, you know, this industry is riddled with kind of misfits. And I know that that word can evoke negative connotation, but it also can be great, right? We certainly have people with addiction issues who can't seem to shake their demons. We have the narcissist who needs constant validation. We have the brokenhearted who see caring, who see comfort in caring for others. And, you know, we have all these like kind of typecasts. But at the end of the day, when, you know, we all enter this industry because we need it. It satisfies some craving that eats away at our soul. And the industry itself, we find family, and albeit maybe a fractured one at times, but through hard work and sacrifice, we forge these pieces back to find acceptance within ourselves. Absolutely. But let's, let's circle back to the, more specifically, the Indian cooking yeah. aspect of it as Is there a few things you want to share about, before we run out of too much time, about what's unique about how Indian dishes come together, anything like that? Yeah, for sure. So, you know, part of Indian cuisine was unlearning all of the French fine dining that I had in me. A lot of my upbringing was very, you know, high end in my my career. So, for instance, you know, there's techniques called like tartka, and tartka is basically this tempering technique where... You have oil, you're blooming whole seed spices and some mm-hmm. other things, and then you're, you're kind of pouring that on a finished dish. These are infusing fat and flavors and all these things. So the misconception uh, about Indian food, I think I went going into it, was, oh, I'm going to know this because I know how to cook. At the end of the day, it was very humbling. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions with that specifically. But as we move forward, you know, letting people know that Indian food is not just chicken tikka masala. It's not butter chicken. It's not samosas. 
the the food of India changes drastically every 30 kilometers. And you can have dishes that aren't spicy. You can have dishes that aren't very curry-centric. In fact, the word curry isn't even a word that would make sense to the average person in India. You know, they they call them gravies when you look at kind of those things like that. Things like curry powder don't exist there. British inventions. So I think all of the ignorance that's wrapped up in the West was something that was eye-opening to me because I was very much that person as well. Well, and I think it's like one of the things that fascinates me is how similar things were developed in very far-flung parts of the world that in a day where there was no internet, there was no TV or anything like that for them to have been able to share the information. I still haven't gotten anybody to explain to me the difference between a Venezuelan empanada and a calzone in Italy. <laughs> it's funny because a lot of it, it, it comes back to one root word that gets thrown out a lot. And that word is authenticity, mm. right? Authenticity. What does authenticity mean in terms of food? Well, it's completely subjective in which the time period we're looking, right? Is a calzone intrinsic, intrinsically authentic to Italy? Well, no. Mm. But also, yes, right? You know, it's that. It's, like you it's say, this, it depends on what time frame you're <laughs> Exactly. You know, like in India, you look at, you know, a dish like, you know, dal, you know, just a simple, humble dal. Well, if tomato goes in dal, then it's not authentic because the tomato was brought by Europeans, you know, during colonialism. So, like, there's, there's all these things that exist. And if we get off the word authenticity, which I beg everyone to do, and go more on the realms of traditional. Or this is the way that my mother made it or my family made it. And then that gets a lot easier to kind of digest. Right, right. And it, it also, like you were talking about with the 30 kilometer thing in Italy, another one of my guests is a Italian chef out of Philadelphia, born and raised there. Hmm. Born, raised in early culinary training in Italy. Uh, and one of the things that she and I were talking about was, okay, what is or isn't authentic? Well, are you in Naples? Or are you in Milan? Or are you? <laughs> yep. It's like, because, you know, it's, it's like the whole argument in South Carolina versus about the barbecue sauce in West South Carolina and the barbecue sauce in Eastern South Carolina. There's, there's people that have almost gone to war over white sauce versus dark barbecue sauce in South Carolina. Crazy. And well, I'm just saying, it, it's, it's crazy, but at the same time, this is, this is the world you and I function in. <laughs> I'm just saying, you can't even, even get both. South Carolina is not even that big, okay? Right. I, I, I am in Texas. It takes five hours to get anywhere here. <laughs> we go to South Carolina and we're like, this is a state? Yeah. You can't, you can't <laughs> even get two halves of a small state to, to agree on something as simple as barbecue sauce for crying out loud. Yeah, well, listen, man, I, I live in New Hampshire, so I'm not about to, to wag size of state. Oh, just, <laughs> oddly enough, I took a, a MOOC, a massively open online course, like two election cycles ago about the New Hampshire primary mm. at the University of New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. Odd place to say the New Hampshire primary, I know, but <laughs> it's the opportunity I had. And one of the things they talked about is even as small as New Hampshire is about all the, the different segments of that state and how the attitudes of people in, di in, in different parts of the state are completely different. And mm -hmm. 
you know. And uh, people think we're we're getting off on a on a tangent, but we're really not because it it applies to us in the in the food business too. Because if you want to open a restaurant or a grocery store or any other food business in New Hampshire, you have to deal with the same factors. Mm-hmm. I can't yeah. necessarily. I mean, it's your state. You you already know what I'm saying, but our audience doesn't necessarily. You can't open the same restaurant in North New Hampshire by the Canadian border as you can in the southern part of the state. Absolutely true. Yeah, and it's they're completely these, different markets. And it's exposure. It's it's you know like if I ask the average person can you say hi my name is Keith in Hindi you probably can't. And does that make you a bad person? Of course not. It's just not something you studied and I I think this world needs one thing more than any anything else. It needs compassion and empathy. Right? Like we need to begin to to remember that Empathy matters. And I know, again, if the average listener is like, oh, you're going off on a tangent, this is very fundamentally true for food because we always have prejudices in our mind of what a cuisine is or isn't. And if we study history, we see it in America. And here's how really quick. When a bunch of immigrants were coming over from Italy, they started setting up restaurants here. And the food writers immediately denounced it. They said, the average Westerner will not like this food because garlic is too spicy. And now you look at how predominant and woven into the fabric of America Italian food is. It's just exposure. Sure, sure. And I've, one of the things I've taught for, for a few years now is that people, people's idea of what is or is not cooked uh, properly it goes back to what they were used to when they were raised. Totally agree. And that goes back to exactly what you're talking about. They, that's what they were exposed to for the first 18, 20 years of their life. Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about a, a, a 40-year-old professional, you're talking about half their life. Yeah, absolutely. That's, 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 that's a significant amount of their input. And not, not everybody is uber curious about food like we are and, and goes out and explores all these different cuisines and different techniques and, and, and different things. Yeah. And that's okay. So it, it is. I don't know where the number even started, but they say in the business that the average, the average home cook knows how to cook six dishes mm-hmm. and they go out to eat on the seventh night and then they start over the next week. <laughs> that's but cool. for a lot of people that works. Yep. Yep. And I don't fault those people. Like that's, that was my mom. You know, and so like I really genuinely understand that side of it. I know not everyone wants to try Indian food and they're scared of that. That's okay to me. Yeah, we're we're down to about our last 10 minutes. If you could tell somebody, say one dish in, in Indian food that they should try to really grasp what it is you've been saying, what dish would that be? I would say biryani. Um, so the average biryani that you're going to get in the West would be some amalgamation of like a Hyderabadi biryani. The reason is everyone recognizes rice. In America, we get rice. We like mm-hmm. rice. We typically comes out of like Uncle Ben's rice or Minute Maid and, and all these things, right? Or Minute Rice. But I think the explosion of flavor, it's not a gravy-based dish, but it has this wonderful, deep, rich flavor to it. It's kind of the, it's like, wow, this is what rice can become. I think it's approachable to everyone. Well, since I'm sitting here in the land of rice, I'm not going to argue. 
<laughs> yes. We were talking about history and whatnot earlier. Katy, the area I'm in here west of Houston, historically, that's what Katy was, was just thousands of acres of rice fields and, mm. and, and, and such. It's Historically, it's a big agricultural community. Mm. Now I'm sitting a, mo- a, a block away from a halal butcher shop. So, so we certainly have a lot of food variety going on in our world now. And you're also in the land of Tex-Mex, which... Oh, yes, absolutely. I think is delicious, right? And remember I've, I've got how two I... Tex-Mex restaurants over by the Halal Butcher Shop. Oh, nice. Rem- rem- remember how I said that Indian food and Mexican food are cousins? That's why I think a dish like biryani links it. Because the average Westerner will love Mexican rice and beans. But once you have biryani, you can see where that dish can go. There's a, there's a connection there that makes sense for the person. Sure. Before we get too far, just right quick, just a couple, three minutes. Did you want to talk about your new book coming up in August? Yeah, sure. I, uh, Zoom's you know, going to cut us off here in a, pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. So it's all about fermentation, really mastering the art of fermentation. Fermentation has been something that I've loved for so long from brewing kombuchas. So this book is written for the average person in mind. It's not written for a chef. So if you're new and you really want to do some things in a safe manner, I break down the methodologies, how to do this safely, and really bring somebody in from the beginner all the way to people who are, you know, even moderately experienced with it. So I'm really excited to to share that with the world. I love foraging and fermenting. So this is, it's nice to get to share that part. Absolutely. And I want to thank you for joining us. You really gave us a lot to think about. And of course, that's why this podcast is structured the way it is, is some of like what we were talking about, bringing in the diversity of the food world, bringing in diversity of opinions, the diversity of perspectives. And we certainly appreciate you adding yours. Uh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you, my friend. Absolutely, Keith. Thank you, Keith, for, for, for all that great information, feedback, and insight. For more from Crutchfield Cooks, the podcast, be sure and check us out at www.learnmoreeatbetter.com. Even better, if you want to help us keep going, go to www.ko-fi.com slash Crutchfield Cooks and throw us a little support. Until next time.